0: you're listening to an ODI
1: live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.
2: Hello, good afternoon, good morning, good evening to all of you. (laughs) Welcome to to today's webinar, Leaving No One Behind, Moving the Agenda Forward. We have over 200 people registered to take part in today's webinar. So a really warm welcome to those tuning in from all over the world. My name is Gonzalo Hernandez-Licona. I'm the director of the Multidimensional Poverty Network in Oxford. Uh, In fact, for many years, I've been engaged in measuring and evaluating social development. We've had important agreements about measuring poverty. Uh, Many countries have uh, official poverty indicators, But honestly, finding official inequality indicators is more difficult. I mean, there's agreement that the world is unequal in all dimensions and senses. Uh, In the whole world, within nations and societies, we know that there are groups left behind for years, sometimes for centuries. But there is less agreement about concrete targets. Which goals? Equality of what, as Amartya Sen said many years ago. So, so, we are meeting here today, after a year like no other. The world has faced, and still facing, unprecedented challenges, including education, employment, and financial support. COVID-19 has accentuated social and economic problems that we had before the pandemic, and challenged the social contract in ways that have been widening inequalities within and between countries. Um, therefore. Leave no one behind is a fundamental principle underlying Agenda 2030 and the Sustainable Development Goals. I mean, from my point of view, it's the most important element of the agenda and perhaps the most difficult to tackle. Its emphasis on the poorest groups, putting the most vulnerable and disadvantaged first, and reducing group based inequalities has the capacity to bring about transformative changes. Yet, five years on from signing this agreement, there is little agreement on how to adapt into actionable policies, not only policies, but even on concrete goals. So, so without concrete agreements, we will reach 2030 without much progress. Today's discussion will draw upon ODI's upcoming report, Leave No One Behind, five years into Agenda 2030. We explore the core elements of the Leave No One Behind pledge, the impacts of COVID-19, and provide examples of promising national, regional, and international progress. Our seminar today has an incredible panel, and I'm pleased uh, to present them today. I'd like to start uh, with, with Emma Saman. Emma is a research associate with an Equality and Social Policy Programme, ODI, And has particular experience in the analysis of multidimensional poverty and inequality, the human development approach, server design, and the use of subjective indicators to inform development policy. Welcome, Emma. Rachel Yishelkist. Rachel is a political scientist and a senior research fellow with the United Nations University World Institute for Development Economics Research. Rachel works on the political on the politics of developing countries with a focus on inequality, ethnic politics, state building, and governance, and the role of aid in democracy and democratization. Her work focuses on sub-Saharan Africa politics. Welcome, Rachel. Besinati Mepo. Besinati is World Vision International's Technical Director for Social Accountability. Bessie's work includes overseeing the scale up of citizens' voice and action, a social accountability approach being implemented across 48 countries. Her work focuses on adaptable programming and the approach to empower and equip communities to engage in dialogue and collective action for accountable delivery of public services for child well-being. Welcome, Bessie. And finally, we have Ricardo Fuentes Nieva, a great friend. Uh, Ricardo is an economist and independent consultant Formerly, Ricardo was executive, executive Chief Officer of Oxfam, Mex- Mexico. He has extensive experience in non-governmental organizations and has been a leader in the global conversation in finding solutions to hunger, inequality, and social improvement. So welcome to you all, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to our webinar today. Thank you for you to, for participating. Um, I would like you to know that uh, we will be ta- talking questions for, taking questions from the audience. So please do use the chat box below to insert your questions and comments. These will be captured throughout um, uh, the course, ready to be answered in the Q&A que- question segment later on. We'll do our best to address most of the, of the questions. Uh, so please feel free also to get involved on Twitter using alongside. Hashtag moving, leave no one behind forward, L-N-O-B forward. So I will start immediately with Emma. Thank you very much, Emma, and thank you to all of you. Uh,
3: Thank you very much, Gonzalo, and thank you to everybody for, for joining us today. So what I would like to do in the next few minutes is to highlight some of the key messages in our report and and hopefully persuade you all to to read further. Um, As you can see, the report is is titled Leave No One Behind, Five Years Into Agenda 2030. And it is co-authored with Jose Manuel Roche, uh, Moisa Binat Sarwar, and Martin Evans. And in the reports, we are aiming to understand how the Leave No One Behind agenda became central to the Sustainable Development Goals, how it's been acted upon to date, and how it can be further advanced. So first of all, we argue that the agenda itself is is a simple one, that it calls for identifying those who are falling behind or falling out of progress in human development, and responding to that with a reprioritization of policy and of resources. The the ultimate aim of this is to close gaps in life chances and to reduce unequal outcomes. Secondly, we aim to make the case that pursuing the Leave No One Behind agenda is critical to addressing many of the challenges that are facing disadvantaged groups. Our our focus in this report is on middle-income countries, and we argue that it's a realistic ambition for most middle-income countries to pursue. For example, we argue that most of Uh, the middle-income countries have the have available enough data and enough financing to permit acting on a leave no one behind agenda in particular around three quarters of middle income countries have had a nationally representative household survey within the last five years so there's enough data to start profile identifying and profiling left behind groups and 60 percent of middle-income countries are already devoting enough of their GDP to health and education that could provide basic levels of coverage to all and that's that's based on uh, international thresholds as to what levels of, of GDP would be necessary in health and in education. So in the report, we, we spend quite a bit of time seeking to illustrate some, some easily applicable metrics for identifying left behind groups and tracking whether countries are pursuing a leave no one behind agenda and commenting on the types of, of policies that it recommends. So in our analysis, we outline three interpretations of what it means to, to leave no one behind, each becoming progressively stronger. So under the first interpretation, the key criteria is that all groups make absolute progress, that they may meet the 2030 targets, but inequality itself may increase in that process. Uh, A better situation would be that disadvantaged groups experience progress, which is at least as quick as the national average, so that the gap between uh, their circumstances and, and the average Uh, closes over time. And better still, we argue that absolute differences in life chances between the most and least advantaged groups uh, will converge over time, so that absolute inequality in life chances fall. And we seek to illustrate how these interpretations can be applied to commonly available household survey data, and we we explore several SDG targets in Brazil, Nepal, and Nigeria. We selected these countries in part because of the contrasts the contrast that they offer. We see reasonably inclusive development progress in Brazil. We see rapid progress coupled with some evidence of narrowing disparities in, in Nepal. And we see stagnation amid growing disparities in life chances in Nigeria. So in this slide, we apply these measurement guidelines. We give one example, uh, which is an exploration of trends in stunting amongst young children in Nepal and in Nigeria, both on average and in each country's most disadvantaged region. This analysis could, of course, be applied to explore other sources of inequality, such as age, gender, disability status, race or ethnicity, and combinations of of these characteristics. And in the report, we explore various techniques for for doing this. So in short, in Nepal, we see improvements over time, both on average and in the country's mountain zone. But despite this progress, the, the country remains off track to meet the SDG target of ending stunting. Even if we carry forward this 10-year trend that you can see here, at least one in five young children will will still be stunted in in 2030 on average. However, at the same time, progress is slightly more rapid in the mountain zone than on average, so that the gap in stunting rates is is closing slightly. In in Nigeria, in the other panel, we see that the average stunting rate declines very slightly over the 10-year period, but its prevalence increases in the northeast region such that we see a widening of the gap over time. As of 2018, around one in three young people were were stunted in the country on average, and well, over half were stunted in the country's northeast. So in other words, in Nepal, we see, according to this indicator, that relative and absolute inequality show small reductions. However, both increased in Nigeria. And in particular, children in the northeast of Nigeria were increasingly left behind in terms of malnutrition. So we also review some of the policies, uh, in particular, focusing on those recommended by international organizations who have addressed the Leave No One Behind agenda. We find that their recommendations often advocate for progressive universalism, which refers to efforts to provide a service for all coupled with targeted supports to the most disadvantaged groups for addressing discrimination both through positive discrimination and anti-discrimination measures and for recognizing intersectionality both in policy and in programming. And we provide in the report selected examples of how these policies have been applied and of their effectiveness. And so to to close, I'd like to underline our basic point that that while we need a better evidence base and more data and finance, this shouldn't deter action, that that we already know enough about what works in order to pursue a Leave No One Behind agenda. And in most middle-income countries, the data and financing are already available to take steps uh, in this direction. And so I'd be happy to elaborate on some of the challenges that we envision and potential ways forward in the panel discussion. But I think I'll I'll close the presentation for now. So over to you, Gonzalo. Thanks again.
2: Thank you very much, Emma, for a, a great presentation and very go to the go to the point. So please, Rachel, I have four or five minutes uh, for your remarks and comments. Please. Okay.
0: Great, thank you. Um, It's really a a pleasure to be here and I I really would like to congratulate Emma and the the other authors of the report for what I think is is a very significant contribution to our ongoing discussion on on these issues. Um, I wanted to highlight um, three brief comments uh, in my initial uh, remarks here, um, thinking about, about the report but also a bit more broadly. So the first point um, that I wanted to make is is simply to recognize the progress that I think has been made in terms of take up of the Leave No One Behind agenda, um, and relatedly in terms of attention to issues of inequality. So I think we can see some progress here if we contrast, if we think back to the era of the Millennium Development Goals, which was focused um, on national level statistics and really obscured a lot of the within country variation that we pay a lot of attention to now. Um, my own work has focused in particular around inequality between groups and society. So especially inequality between groups defined in ethnic or broadly cultural terms. Um, so the sort of inequalities that, uh, that Emma highlighted in, in her discussion uh, think about, for instance, racial inequalities between racial groups in Brazil, and South Africa, uh, in the United States, many other countries, or inequalities between indigenous and non-indigenous populations, uh, and so on. And we've seen um, these sorts of inequalities haven't always gotten a lot of attention in international development circles. And I think it's progress that they're on the table now. Uh, They deserve attention for reasons of social justice, equity, and fairness, Um, and they deserve attention because there is a growing body of research that demonstrates that they might have negative implications for other outcomes that we care about, in particular around peace and conflict, good governance, uh, and prosperity. Second, um, there was major concern as the SDGs were launched about data gaps and the need to strengthen the evidence base for monitoring and evaluation. And I think we should recognize progress in this area as well. And the ODI report uh, presented today is a really great example here, and it illustrates um, the sort of the wealth of what can be learned from smart analysis of existing household surveys in many, many countries. I led a research initiative over the past few years at WIDER, at UNU WIDER, that did some related uh, work using existing survey and census data to study and consider uh, patterns and trends in group-based inequality across 15 developing Global South countries. And our initiative uh, lends support to one of the main arguments in this report, which is that a lot more can be gleaned from existing data use in developing uh, Leave No One Behind profiles. That said, um, I guess this leads to my third point. Um, I think despite this progress, I am really a lot less optimistic uh, than than the report about the prospects for building complete and accurate Leave No One Behind profiles using the sort of survey and official data of the type that's that's highlighted uh, in the report. One of the, the points shown clearly in, in our research is that even with focused analysis, uh, significant gaps exist in the data on group-based inequality. So just you know, a few quick examples, we can think about the lack of data on caste in Indian official sources, which has been a really persistent problem for research uh, on, on India, for research in this area on India. Uh, In Nigeria, where we know that ethnicity is politically salient, we aren't able to draw directly on measures of ethnicity in our work. um, And instead, we need to rely on regional data as a proxy for ethnicity. It might be a regional proxy, but it might be a reasonable proxy, but it's still a proxy. Um, And to give just one more example, uh, think, for instance, of Tanzania, where we know that ethnicity uh, is politically salient, Um, Religion is also, has also been politically salient, but we would completely miss this if we were to look only at official uh, data at the census or at standard survey data. I think some of the hardest constraints here are political because data are political and data on groups may be especially so. So I think, you know, in short, it's very clear when we think about some of the data gaps that these gaps aren't accidental. um, And they won't be solved, I think, with with devoting more financial resources and with better techniques. Indeed, in some cases, it might be that missing information is sometimes more informative about which groups are being left behind than the statistics themselves. Um, And I think we should be thinking uh, creatively about how to supplement the sort of rich statistical analysis that's presented here with other types of evidence. So let me uh, stop there.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Rachel. We need more more, and better data. Uh, Bessie, please.
1: Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. So it's a pleasure to be able to contribute to this important theme. And a big congratulations to ODI for the report being launched today. Um, As an organization, World Vision launched a new strategy about six years ago. And at the heart of that strategy is the whole leave no one behind agenda. And we have committed to work with children in some of the hardest to reach places. Now, my area of work is social accountability. And I like what Rachel said, and I'll come back to it in a minute, Um, and I think her point was that if you only look at official data, you can miss some of the the key um, people that are being left behind. But what I'd like to do, I'd like to give you some examples and illustrate ways in which social accountability can be able to contribute to the Leave No One Behind agenda. So firstly, what we're seeing from our programming is that social accountability can help to ensure that public services work for everyone within a community. So really looking at the individual level at the end of the day and where people in remote communities meet public services. We had a recent evaluation of our work in in, our citizen voice and action work in Bangladesh. And this was part of a bigger USAID funded program. And not only did the evaluation find that public services had improved as a result of some of the social accountability work that was happening there, but the evaluators went further they wanted to really understand whether um, particular groups were being left behind in receiving these improved public services. Encouragingly enough, the people that were questioned, and these included government officials, community members and service providers, they all responded and acknowledged that recipients were not being left out on the basis of ability, creed, um, caste, or any other arbitrary considerations. And in fact, women, um, uh, the elderly, the ultra-poor, and other groups were actually accessing services. And we really felt encouraged with, with these findings. In other cases, we're finding that social accountability can help bring services physically closer to to communities that have been left out in the past. And we've seen this in some work in, in Kenya, where Citizen Voice and Action helped to mobilize communities and communities themselves influenced the government in setting up about three health facilities in the takuna region of of Kenya so in one particular village villagers initially had to um, walk about 18 had to commute, commute about 18 kilometers to get to the nearest health um, facility and this was now reduced to one kilometer after their, their lobbying. But the second angle that I would like to um, present is that social accountability can also help bring people into the process of accountability. And this links in a little bit to what Rachel was saying. What we've learned over the past 15 years in using this approach is that the journey is critical. The journey is important. And if the leave no one behind agenda is talking about sustainable change, then we really need to look at the journey. The journey needs to be transformational. Our experience with social accountability in Indonesia, and this came out in an evaluation report, is that not only did the approach improve services, but it helped to strengthen system and transform the relationships between the community, the service providers, and the governments. It put people in the system as claimants with political rights, um, but also as providers of service useful information. In the Bangladesh example um, that that I spoke about, they were, the the project team was really intentional in bringing those that are often left behind into the project. And this was important because it helps those left behind to have a voice and to be able to talk about their own lived experience, but also to be active participants in, in the process. There's a lot of examples that we can bring, but maybe one last point um, for now is that social accountability can also help to elevate the voices of communities from the local level to the subnational and even the national level. And I think this is really important. In our experience, we've been trying to work with technology to try and aggregate voices and lift them up, but it is critical. So the key thing is that it needs to be transformational. So uh, let me stop there for now and and thank you.
2: Excellent, Uh, Bessie, the importance of social accountability. Um, I will come back later with you. Uh, Please, Ricardo, uh, go ahead. You have four or five minutes. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you, Gonzalo, and uh, thank you, Emma, and ODI for the invitation. It's a it's a great pleasure to be here, and congratulations on on this report. It's a it's a very timely report. I I'll try to be brief and, and built on on what others have said. But one important point that I want to make uh, from from the get go is that what COVID has shown us over the past year. Uh, is that uh, any any progress in uh, in closing uh, inequalities is fragile? Uh, what we've seen in many contexts is that like the the poor people in marginalized urban settings are the ones who are suffering most. And 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 when you look at the, at the data on uh, on race and ethnicity, uh, it, it's often uh, marginalized groups who are suffering uh, the most from from this shock. So. We have to recognize that, like, despite despite the progress that we've seen, moving from the Millennium De- Millennium Development Goals to the SDGs and 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 the prominence of the "Leave No One Behind" agenda, um, it's it's a good thing that that happened. But in any case, you know, all that progress is fragile, and we have to keep that in mind. And and um, I think it was Rachel who said, "There's there's something." beyond the the technical aspects uh, the measuring and and tracking the the gaps which is the political economy uh, the political aspects and and that's that, that's not reflected only on uh, on on data collection or on or data availability it's also reflected on the quality of public spending and the efficiency of public spending to close these gaps and, and the representation. And I think that's that's where, uh, I mean, one of the things that we need to start thinking about is like who, I mean, how can we influence uh, that political economy? How can we change those those power relations in a way that uh, that uh, people or groups that have been historically marginalized can have access to representation, to um, accountability, to uh, demanding uh, their their local governments for for uh, you know better attention, more services, and uh, and, and a long term plan uh, for for reducing this. These gaps and actually achieving the the leave no wine uh, behind agenda, and this is where I think uh, um, it's important to talk about the role of, of civil society and international NGOs, um, because as, as Fukuyama says in his book, uh, the origins of political order, uh, one of the important pillars of uh, of of a, of a of an advance, over a progressive society, is uh, is what he calls democratic accountability. We need a strong state. We need the rule of law, but we also need uh, this this kind of checks and balances that's coming from organized society, organized citizenship. Uh, and I, and I think that's that's where we need to, uh, if we're looking at the political economy angle, we need to to think about like how I mean how are we ourselves organizing as societies in order to have this representation of marginalized groups because part of the problem part of the part of the problem why they've been marginalized part of the problem what they, they there is not enough data um, sometimes although as 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 the report shows you know there's enough data to 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 act upon uh, it's It's coming from 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 an endogenous uh, representation, lack of representation. And I think uh, uh, changing that will take a long time, but it can be done. Um, I think Martin Revalion has documented how Malaysia did it, uh, for instance. Um, but it, it it won't be easy, and it won't be a technical solution. It's a political economy. Problem and 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 as such, what we need to think also is what's the the, the political economy um, structure that can change uh, those those things. Now, uh, there are, there are kind of good and, and, and bad news on that. The good news is like I mean it can happen as, as I was saying it happened in Malaysia it happened with the inequality um, agenda. I mean one of the good things of, of reaching a certain age is that I can I, I have been able to see how things have been moving uh, in in terms of the inequality agenda. And um, I remember in in 2005, I was working on the Human Development Report and we did uh, similar graphs using the DHS data. But back then, uh, in in 2005, uh, talking about inequality was a fringe kind of um, activity. And then, uh i mean you you mentioned it in the report you know the the, the work that we did in oxford I mean, in in 2014 on on economic inequality kind of helped shape the 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 agenda around the sdg so so that can change but at the same time what we've seen is the backlash the backlash of like the the dark side of, of identity politics, that um, that kind of creates division, that creates polarization, and uh, and and can create uh, uh, I mean more difficulties to to achieve something. So, conclusion uh, in in this first, we need to look at the political economy. We need to look at sources of of representation and uh, and voice. Uh, and how that can uh, be sustained over time, because this is going to be a long-term issue. Um, and there is, like, I mean, it's going to be a perilous path, but it's something that we need to to do. And 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 I think this report is a good step in that direction.
2: Thank you very much, Ricardo. The importance of political economy. So I would like that in the next ten minutes, um, we I could I could ask one question each, just to follow up on what you're saying, just to Clarify or to go deeper, if you if you um, allow allow me, L- let me just ask uh, uh, Emma. How, uh, I mean, in your experience, how to talk, how to convince, how to exchange with countries' ideas about meeting targets, about getting policies, uh, about prioritizing prioritizing elements, because. Uh, isn't, I mean countries have so many things in their minds, presidents and ministries. So what is your experience in, in how could you how can we talk to countries and convince go on, on, on paths which are important?
3: Okay, thank thank you for the question and, and thanks everybody for the really useful reflections. Um, I guess what I would I would say to that, Gonzalo is is maybe a little bit of a, a sort of a sideways answer in 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 some ways, which is that, that coming from a research perspective, uh, I guess what we have one of the things that we've sought to focus on is is how we can can encourage, convince, persuade countries. Um, to to make the changes that are needed, what sort of guidelines can be in place? What sort of benchmarking can be done? Mm-hmm. To what extent can uh, can the steps that are needed to advance this agenda be embedded in various types of of national and international processes? So um, I guess from from our perspective, it's it's probably what kind of structures can we put in place that would that would give the agenda more traction. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, both within countries and and across countries and in the report we we do suggest some some avenues towards that um we we highlight ways in which we think that the evidence base does need strengthening which which uh, echoes a bit the comments made uh by by Rachel earlier and and more specifically we we try to start addressing some of these political economy questions that that Ricardo was was highlighting rightly um by by looking at ways of of that we can embed the agenda into international processes. So for example, would it be useful to have a sort of UN sponsored report, which compares countries' experiences, which which looks at what might be possible, which yeah. celebrates the progress that some countries have made? Uh, what kind of, of comparable uh, tools can we devise that might look at the distributional impacts of reform? And, and perhaps more importantly still, what are the processes by which we can ensure greater um, accountability, both within countries and within the international system, for example, through the high level political forum, which is one of the aspects we comment on. So yeah, let me stop there.
2: No, 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 thank you very much, Emma. Um, I, I, for, for Rachel, I mean, you talk about they have to recognize progress. Uh, that we can we can see and we can show inequalities uh, within regions within groups but, but we still have need for data so again how can we convince governments about investing in data sometimes it's about a financial thing so sometimes it's a political issue as Ricardo was saying so is there a way we can we can convince more countries to invest in in good data rachel
0: uh, yeah i mean i think that there's um it's a it's the it's a big question right i think there's there's a number there's international pressure that can be brought to bear in terms of yeah. same norms okay. about non discrimination and so on um and i think that uh, ricardo and Bessinati hinted at or spoke to to some of this as well that we can support um building Different avenues to building the the internal political will uh, in countries for collecting better data on on uh, some disadvantaged groups, um, but I, I I guess I'm still um, worried about uh, the this broader problem of the lack of political will for some countries, even with international pressure. I mean, even sure. if you get countries. Uh, agreeing in 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 rule to to um, non discrimination and to being inclusionary and so on, the practice is often quite different. So I think this is a an issue we need to continue to wrestle with uh, in multiple ways, including uh, especially at the
2: grassroots level. Sure, absolutely. No, thank you very much, um, um You said correctly that that social accountability could be important to, to, to push the agenda forward, specifically or leave no one behind. I want to ask you if, if you think social accountability will be useful and how for, for what we have in, in front of us, which is the COVID vaccination process, uh, where, where, where governments may, may not choose the, the right path or may not choose priorities correctly how do you think uh, social accountability can we use for that?
1: Sure. Yeah, thank you so much. That's a really timely question and something that we're grappling with at the moment as an organization. Because sure. at the end of the day, when we talk about leaving no one behind, we want to ensure that that vaccine reaches that person, that grandmother, mm-hmm. that child in the community at the end of the day, but in the standard that has been committed at the government level. So what we try to do as an organization and what we hope to even do as we begin to see the rollout of vaccines is to ensure that the communities that we're working with clearly understand what are their entitlements with the vaccine. You know what are their entitlements, what can they expect and then we need to have them be in the driving seat in monitoring and demanding accountability for these vaccines. I think the governments need to look at um, the users at the end of the day as critical sources of information as we've said. Looking at official data only is not sufficient but having that complementarity that comes right from the communities is a critical point. We use tools such as the community scorecard mini social audits and they're very Approaches to social accountability that can help to push the services closer. Sure,
2: sure. sure. No, so I just um, suggested a uh, co- couple of days ago to the Mexican Statistical Office in their quarterly survey to include questions about the people being vaccinated, just to con- contrast what is happening in the field versus what the government uh, is saying. So thank you very much, Absolutely. Ricardo. Um, uh, I mean, we've talked about it a lot, but what is the role of power in leave no one behind and inequality? I mean, um, what is the role of power and what can we do? Because at the end of the day, uh, the imbalances about uh, incomes and opportunities, sometimes it's about, about power, right?
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it's a central question. And it's, um, I mean, I think that's, that's one of the main, Progress in understanding these dynamics over the past twenty years, uh, in many cases, coming from the institutional literature, yeah. um, and, and looking at how power is distributed in the, um, in in a formal and informal way. You know, like how institutions yeah. reflect biases towards certain groups, but also how uh, culture and norms also kind of uh, embedded in a society also kind of discriminate against certain groups. And I think kind of recognizing that in a, in a, in a way that we can change it, not, not only contest it, but uh, not, not only like, speak against it, but actually change it. And that, that implies uh, compromises and that implies um, uh, something that has been spoken about, about a lot recently, which is kind of a new social compact we don't, I mean, a lot of people are, are speaking about uh, new social contract and new social compact, but we don't really know what that uh, what, what that means, and, and I think uh, principles of equity and fairness and, and equal representation for all groups in a given society uh, will, be, will be very important, and that's where I think the issues of social accountability that Bessie was mentioning are important, but also how different kind of like grassroots organizations at the national level can connect with other similar grassroots organizations in different parts of the world to learn, to organize, to put pressure, uh, and to actually kind of create this this uh, this global movement for um, kind of like I mean that internal but also external kind of a pincer movement of pressure to actually redistribute that power it won't be easy it uh, you know as, as i was saying it it, it has a, uh, it's it's a perilous path but i think uh, it's something that we need to think is 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 it's an agenda that's complex it it has national elements it has international elements and it has a, a cross-cutting uh, organizational element
2: thank you very much ricardo um very important answers and 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 many, many still questions. So what I would like to to, to have in the next 25 minutes is a, a panel discussion uh, in which uh, I want to ask some questions and then um, between you guys, please um, carry on in, in, a, in a very interactive way. Um, so so co- questions such as, what do you see as the core element of the Leave No One Behind agenda? Uh, are there concrete examples and good examples? How has the COVID pandemic impacted left behind groups? What do you see as key elements for, for recovery? Do you see that the SDGs agenda and its focused on changing in light of the financial imperatives of responding to COVID? What do you think are the challenges there? What do you see as a critical barriers to rolling out, leave no one behind, sensitive policy and reaching left behind groups? What are strategies? do you see as most effective in raising awareness of and advancing the leave no one behind agenda? So how do you think? And in the meantime, those who are watching, please send your questions and we'll have our Q&A um, uh, session in like 25 minutes time. So, um, I mean, who, who, who would like to start on, 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 on question, answering some of these questions, um, Rachel? For instance, do you want to, do, do sure,
0: do? <laughs> sure. Maybe I'll kick off with um with the question about the, I think barriers to addressing the leave no one behind true, agenda true. comes out quite well from some of the things we've discussing. We've been Thanks, discussing. Sir. I mean, in my mind, right? The the critical barrier uh, in a lot of countries is is political will. So so um, there's an implicit. Uh, Assumption, I think in a lot of our discussions about the leave no one behind principle that everybody agrees on it. Um, And I think that that's a big assumption in in a lot of cases. Um, And we rely in Agenda 2030 quite a lot on on national governments, on voluntary national review. Um, And not all governments are on board in the way that we might think Mm. they should be or hope they should be, right? And I'll I'll give you a recent example that's been in the news a lot. At least the news I've been reading coming from the US, right? There's been, um, with the Trump administration, there was a real dismissal of, of claims about group-based inequality and structural racism uh, and, and so on. And we um, we saw in, I think it was Monday, the 1776 report came out really kind of um, combating claims about group-based inequality and, and really fighting against identity politics and so on. And you think even if if even in a consolidated, well, arguably consolidated democracy like the U.S., it's hard to build political will for addressing these things. Um, I think that 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 makes us a little less, at least makes me a little less optimistic about building the political will uh, for addressing and putting these things on the agenda in, in many countries. Um, I think the other thing that the other critical barrier that we've talked about a little bit less um, that I would highlight is the gap between sort of rules and practice in many countries, um, maybe linked to weak weak rule of law or the weak weaker states. So, you know, a country might sign on to particular mm-hmm. legislation or adapt particular legislation, but in practice, it's, it's not always uh, things aren't always happening that way on the ground. And we've seen examples of this, for instance, um, in the current pandemic around, say, policing of of lockdowns, uh, which yeah. uh, and targeting of particular groups and so on. So maybe I kick off there and see what others think.
2: Yeah, excellent. Thank you very much, Rachel. Um, anyone to want to participate?
1: Uh? Yeah, maybe just um, a, a contribution yeah, following Rachel's um, point, and this links into the question around um, uh, possible strategies. And, um, you know, I think think there needs to be an acceptance that when we're looking at leaving no one behind, we need to really be intentional. It's not a fast fix. It's not going to be cheap. It's not, it's definitely those being left behind are not the low hanging fruit. It won't tick the strategy boxes that quickly, but it is critical. And I think in our work, for example, from the World Vision side of things, we've had to look at those being left behind at varying degrees. There are some that have got multiple um, different um, characteristics of vulnerability. And looking at current contexts like the COVID context, it just makes things worse. So when you're looking at a child an orphan child who's a refugee in a context that's being affected by various catastrophes, you look at all those multiple dimensions, how do you ensure that child is not left behind? It requires some serious intent. It requires a scale up of multi, Uh, national and and different types of um, collaborations, but also it needs to be transformational. And I can't emphasize that transformational component uh, um, enough, because I think at times when we look at those being left behind, we look at those that we're we're looking as if we're helping them, but actually they're part of the solution. They need to be part of the journey. They they may be disempowered, but they're not helpless. So it's really important to bring them along um, as part of that journey.
2: Yeah no excellent yes you're you're completely right, uh, Bessie. Yeah,
4: um, something, we to help? Help? please. Yeah, uh, because I mean, one of the things that we like we hinted, but we haven't really talked about is kind of like the invisible drivers of of, uh, of that that leave people marginalized or groups. Uh, and um, we've hinted at, say, for instance, risk to shocks or risk, uh, like certain vulnerability that's not visible in the data as, as, as such, but that, that has been visibilized by, by COVID, for instance. In many cases, it, it hasn't been like the poorest of the poor, but it's been the vulnerable people in urban settings. You know, people who live in like who work on on informal sectors or who who, who live in in um, in in, uh, in marginalized parts of, of uh, urban centers, uh, and we 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 really didn't see that vulnerability uh, until until COVID hit, and I think that's the, like, I mean one one, I mean one worry I have is like. As, as the world changes and as we see the shocks, we'll see more shocks uh, related to climate, We're, Like it, it'll be more visibilized. And I think that's something that we need to discuss. Is the leave no one behind agenda complete? Is, is it looking at, at, say for instance, sustainable, uh, sustainable uh, and environmental risks uh, enough um, and how these will kind of affect the long-term uh, life cycle prospects of, of, of people in in groups that have been historically marginalized the, the clearest example is what's happening uh in 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 the education process of uh, uh, kids in, in poorer families in in, in this COVID uh, in this covet uh, situation uh what we see is that uh, uh, kids and families you know privileged families or, or families with high incomes they can well adjust to, to yeah. the COVID situation and to to uh, distance uh, learning, but that's not the same for people uh, and families and kids who, who live in 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 with lower incomes, and I think like I mean that's tragic not only because of what's happening, because but but because of the consequences it will have over the long term um, in terms of in terms of like earnings and in, in, in human capital accumulation, but also in terms of like capabilities and functionings, you know, as Amartya would, uh, would say. So, so I mean, one of the things that we also need to think critically is what we are not seeing in the Leave No One Behind agenda issues of sustainability, vulnerability, shocks, uh, environment.
2: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Ricardo. Um, Eman, do you want to jump in?
3: Yes, um, I, I would like to make a slightly different point, which is actually, if I may, it's sort of a question for for Bessie and for Ricardo, which is that, that in, in the report, one of the things we talk about is the many, many evidence gaps and what types of evidence might be most useful to pursue the agenda. Do we need more methodological? We do need more methodological work. Um, we need more evaluations of, of what works in different settings. We we need a greater understanding of the political drivers of exclusion and, and how they can be countered. Um, it goes without saying, but it, as 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 several of you have said, the key issue is then how do we take this this greater awareness and how do we translate it into action? And I guess um as you were speaking, Ricardo, I was thinking of some Oxford or so some Oxfam work in particular suggesting that that often there are these gaps of awareness that that you know people tend to think that they're higher up on the income distribution than there are perhaps. Um that that Having this this information doesn't always translate into people's perceptions of of position in the distribution and and so on. So I guess it's 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 more of a question: to what extent, you know, what should we be aiming at? Is it to fill these evidence gaps? Is it to shift this awareness? And how do we do so? Or is that a gap? I guess.
2: So you you pose a question for.
3: Yeah, I'm afraid for so. You,
2: for <laughs> your colleagues, right? Yes uh who would like to answer that
4: uh, I mean very quickly you know I don't I don't want to take too much of space but uh, it, it was uh, something I think you have to do everything you know and 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 you have it's a, it's kind of a learning by doing process because sometimes I mean closing these these gaps actually have an impact as as, as you mentioned you know like i mean the the work on economic inequality in, in 2014 it was it was something you like i mean it wasn't cool to talk about inequality back then um and 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 it influenced the international process uh leading to the SDGs uh despite uh, David Cameron's opposition to it. Um, so so sometimes it helps, but sometimes I mean the barriers are are more profound, and I think that's where the role of kind of grassroots organization is important, because what grassroots organization gives you is is that that kind of like ground feeling. Of uh, what what works and what needs to be done, and that's that's where you know the closing down of civil society space in many uh, parts of the world is becoming uh, um, kind of a, a danger to to this agenda, and that's that's something you know, that we that's why we need to look beyond the technical aspects and look at. That those areas that are not necessarily related to this discussion, but say the, the the closing down of civil civic space is something you know that that that's part of this this problem.
1: Maybe I can add on um, yeah, Emma to, to to your question. So I think we need both to fill the evidence gaps and also to shift awareness. Um, Quite often, those that are being left behind may not really realize to what extent they're really being left behind. At least that's our experience with some of the social accountability work that we're supporting. When you go to a remote community, and, and quite recently we've been doing um, social accountability for social protection. So you're looking at some of the most vulnerable groups in community that need this social protection, but they didn't know that actually it's an entitlement for them. You know, So getting them to be aware that actually there is a commitment, a promise to reach you and have you have these services, I think is a critical thing. So narrowing the gap in their awareness, I think is an important point. But also it's their lived experience that need to be part of the um, evidence gap with the government at the end of the day. So having governments being more and more open to unofficial data and this alternative sources of data I think is critical. Um, Civil society um, has has been working on different sources of data for many years and social accountability has a lot to offer when it comes to citizen generated data. And I think this can bring a lot to the equation.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, 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 absolutely. Um, anyone else want to, to answer the question posed by Emma? To to deep to go deeper. Be- because I have I have another another concern that uh, I mean, every time that I go to an, analyze the agenda 2030, um, I mean you have 17 goals. We have 169 targets.
1: <clears throat>
2: we would like everything to, to to we want to have targets in everything and we move forward in in, in all in all the targets. However countries have limited budgets every year. So sometimes I feel like, like development, is like a, this bowling, bowling uh, game that we have to tackle 10 pins, but with only two shots. So we don't have 10 shots to tackle 10 pins, we have only two shots. So, I mean, every year uh, countries and governments have limited resources, and therefore they need some priorities. And I think that in the agenda, uh, the leave no one hand leave no one behind agenda is, is quite similar it's a it's a broad challenge in many dimensions so how can we prioritize uh what is your 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 your, your suggestion for for moving the agenda forward in we still have nine years to go anyone
3: Yeah, I mean, just just to start off, if I may, um, I, I suppose that that one of the arguments that we make in the report is that our focus should should be foremost on on so-called basic capabilities, and I, I think it's possible within within the SDGs to come up with some sort of hierarchy of needs that that could be agreed on, you know, through through some sort of international consensus. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess from my perspective, it it should be possible to prioritize and and that would be the, the place to start with, with you know being fundamentally nourished having a, a basic level of education uh, access to healthcare um so yeah just just to get things started
2: yeah yeah thank you any 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 more thoughts about how can we prioritize uh, not only the agenda but leave no one behind um process
1: yeah, I think that's, uh, that's even going to become a bigger question now, following this COVID situation, where we're seeing countries, poor countries going deeper into debt. And yeah, it's going to be a really challenging situation going forward. I think one of the things that we've been pushing and, and we've been saying is that if the goals are meant to be for the people, then let the people be part of the priority setting. You know, so if there's going to be delivery of certain goals and targets in particular areas of a country, let the local people be part of identifying what are their most critical needs. I think we'll come up to the same issues that Emma mentioned, whether it's healthcare, it's education and so on. But I think it really needs to come from the bottom going up. And having that dialogue between governments and their people, I think, is a a critical step in, in this issue.
2: No, absolutely, because we we had problems of leaving no one behind before COVID. Now things are getting worse. And as Ricardo was saying, in the education arena, things are really, really, really difficult, where you have families with Wi-Fi and laptops and intelligent phones, and then you have families without even electricity sometimes. Therefore, uh, going to school or, or learning is just a big difference now. one, Ricardo?
4: Yeah, and that's uh, that's the the ability to to, to adapt, and uh, in a changing world, that's um, that's a big asset, and it's an invisible asset that that uh, that ability to adapt, and I think, but um, coming back to the question of how how to prioritize, I think, you know, like I mean, over over time and the centuries, it kind of like different societies have achieve this, this ability to have a kind of a, a, a political, a healthy political debate. And that's something that we've been missing for for some time in, in many parts of the world. So so this, this participation needs to come from from that healthy political debate that includes what Bessie was saying, you know, the, the, the participation of, of the people who will be... Uh, you're receiving or 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 part of, of, of whatever programs, and for me the, the, the big question is, how do we restore that healthy political debate? And I, I know that's that's a question way beyond leave no one behind. It's it's a question that relates to one of the the, the SDGs, but uh, but uh, it, it's something that as as international the international community we need to start thinking. You know what, what's our role? In uh, in in not stoking polarization in in improving the, the political debate in the communities where we participate and 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 how we can actually have a, a kind of a, a healthy decent and uh, agreement and compromise.
0: If I can just come in here, I mean I think this. The the breadth of the SDG, SDGs, the sort of laundry list character has been hugely problematic from the beginning, right? For many of us who like to think sort of logically through what should be first order and second order and so on, but it, it's also been important, I think, to to getting agreement on it, right? Um, and I I suppose it's not it's you know it's a it's a tough answer to give, but I think there has to be uh, as 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 the others have suggested some maybe some diversity and interpretation across countries on on what are the the local priorities. And hopefully that that prioritization comes through uh, some some, uh, participatory uh, discussion um, with uh, with local communities. So it reflects uh, local local needs and, and priorities.
2: You're you're muted. Sorry, I'm muted. <laughs> uh, I think I think Rachel mentioned the v, the the voluntary national reports. Uh, so I, I was wondering because this is linked to the to the agenda. So I was wondering. I mean, the good thing about VNRs is that they exist. Uh, countries I I mean are writing them every year. However, those are voluntary, and I don't believe there's a lot of uh, evolution on that. So I was wondering if you think there's a way to influence the shape of VNRs to include more clearly the leave no one behind issues uh, in, in, in most countries. Do you think there's a way we can influence that? Someone can influence the VNRs in terms of leave no one behind?
3: Yeah, if if I could perhaps jump in on, on that um, given that that is something that, that that we discussed, that in particular my, my colleague Moisa, who is one of the, the co-authors of the report, has, has thought about particularly. Um, and I suppose, what we are thinking there is, is, she has conducted an evaluation of the VNRs that have been submitted so far, and found that, with, with some exceptions, they're they're fairly weak in terms of, of sure. both what they're reporting on. You know, often they're reporting on things that took place in in the distant past, and um, yeah. you know, it's often what the government wants to present rather than what would be most useful to advancing the agenda. And sometimes so, you
2: think they are like Switzerland, right? When you read really <laughs> Switzerland
3: yeah, but I guess, so what we um, are, are thinking in the report is there's a couple of ways that they could perhaps be made more effective. One is to to provide a, a sort of standard template that the countries should conform to sure. in their reporting. Yeah. You know, a sort of a, a template for what that could look like in the report. And the other thing is in terms of, of how it's actually integrated into international um, processes, for example, the, the high-level political forum. So should there be a... Mm. a Dedicated section, which is is focused on um, on a review and analysis of the VNRs, that that actually has some some concrete um, targets attached to it. And I think going back to to what Ricardo and Bessie have said, to what extent is it possible to genuinely integrate um, civil society into the the production of the VNRs so that they can be said to, you know, be be um, reflecting a sort of participatory inputs. So yeah, let, let me perhaps stop there.
2: Just perhaps briefly for the audience, the mm. VNRs, the Voluntary National Reports, are the reports that countries are doing every year uh, to show the progress, their progress on on the 2030 agenda. So, as I mm. said, I mean the good thing is this is voluntary because this is an agreement. So it's difficult for the United Nations to just impose something and to make them, uh, to op- countries, to oblige to do something. So this is voluntary. But sometimes, as as Emma says, or many times, the quality is not perfect, and sometimes countries put uh, <laughs> very very shiny things there. So, but I think it's a good va- vehicle, uh, and I can I think that perhaps social accountability uh, Bessie, could be useful for 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 all of us to look at our own country uh, our own country's VNR. Say, so, well, hey hey, we have to include this. So. Because otherwise, it's just the Ministry of uh, of Foreign Affairs sending the the document without even the the, the country or the people looking at it.
1: Absolutely. I I totally agree with with you on on that. And I think those organizations that are working with groups that often are left behind need to be proactive in reaching out and engaging the governments in their development of the VNRs. I think the timelines for VNRs are public, they're online. Um, As an organization, we tend to be proactive to reach out to governments as they begin to prepare their VNR reports. And we talk about certain angles. As a child-focused organization, of course, we want to ensure that the issues affecting children are Right, left, right and centre within those reports. So I think that is critical. An example that we can give, actually, there are some governments that are being a bit more proactive. The government of Malawi last year, as they were preparing their VNR, reached out to a number of um, organisations to lead a process in which they could get voices from the youth in the VNR report. So I thought that was a, a really encouraging example of how you might bring in different groups.
2: Yeah, thank you, thank you. I mean, I I wonder if you have uh, any other comment because we already have questions from the audience. Uh, So, I mean, just to keep the time because we are really good on time. um, uh, If if it's all right with you, let me start with some questions from the audience and then then we carry on. So we have um, around, um like 15 minutes for for this session more or less so so let me start with the with with the first one is what are the essential things uh UNDP can do to undo the reversal shocks of the SDGs caused by COVID-19 so what what can we do what UNDP can, can do for instance anyone uh all of you i mean (laughs) if you who would like to start ricardo
4: (laughs) you know UNDP very well yeah um, (laughs) yeah uh, i I mean i i think uh i mean UNDP has been doing uh, a great work kind of like singling i I mean identifying what are the the consequences um, uh, of or what's happening, um, and I think, like I mean, that's part of the role of, of an organization like UNDP, uh, identifying, you know, providing so, some sort of credible evidence uh, on what, what what the consequences are, and I think, uh, you know, like I mean, continue doing that in a in a way that um, that that uh, governments can can take action and uh, and and feel kind of the. Kind of the need to to actually heed to some of the 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 advice, um, and I know you know it's a, it's, a, it's an organization that's owned by member states and, and things like that. So it doesn't have kind of the same mandate that civil society or international NGOs uh, has. But like I mean, I think that's part of the the, the issue. So organizations like UNDP need to work hand in hand with governments. and need to work hand in hand with. INGOs and local civil society, because like I mean to create the change that we need, that political economy change, it needs to come from all points, all all vantage points, and it needs a lot of coordination and collaboration.
2: Sure. No, thank you very much, Ricardo. Anyone else would like to answer this question from the from the public? Emma?
3: <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I don't not, not specifically on, on UNDP. I, yeah. I don't don't really have insights into that.
2: Um, so, so, so let it's... me go to another question, right? Mm-hmm. Let me go to another question from from the from the public. As is, how can equality data, as a data collection approach, be lobbied for with the field of international cooperation? So. How can we lobby for recorded data? Question from the audience.
3: Um, Okay, I'll jump in here, if I may. A couple of quick thoughts. One is is to highlight more the the gaps that exist, which I think Rachel spoke to um, in, in... Rachel gave some examples of at in the at the beginning of her remarks. So to highlight the gaps that exist, so that they're visible. Often we skip over that and just focus on presenting that data which does exist and don't pay so much attention to yeah. to that's what what that what is lacking that that would assist us. And I think another element of that is obviously cost is always an issue. But I think one of the points that that we we try to make in the report that it, it's doesn't always have to be incredibly costly that there are some sort of quick wins in terms of of data collection um and i think you know through conversations with bessie she she's well placed to speak to this particularly the the opportunities presented by by citizen generated data um but there are other sorts of 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 uh, tangible improvements that could be made simply, for example, by making the administrative data that we know already exists uh, more accessible and and published in along a quicker timeline. So uh, just to say, yes, I think one thing is highlighting the gaps. I think other things is highlighting that it can be cost-effective to, to in some circumstances to collect the data that we need.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Emma. And any, any other thoughts on this question?
0: Um, if I could just add, I mean, I think I, I agree with what what Emma says. I, but I, I suppose I, I would think that at the international level, I'm not sure this is an issue that needs to be lobbied. I think there's quite a lot of agreement that we need better data at the international level. Yeah. I don't know if others <laughs> agree, but I, I, I would maybe focus attention on lobbying in other areas.
2: In local, in local, local areas, in local.
0: M- yeah, maybe building political will for collecting data on on certain uh certain issues uh in particular countries or on thinking about other types of of data collection efforts outside of sort of standard census and and household surveys
2: yeah yeah so we need to convince more down down there than
1: in the international
2: arena um Yeah. yeah
1: please yeah, I was going to just um, agree with that point, but also to agree with Emma that social accountability has much to offer um, with regards to data, but maybe also linking into Ricardo's um, point around the UNDP. So my experience from working with the UNDP many years ago um, in, in Zambia, I was with the Zambian Civil Society Network at the time, it was that they were quite influential and helpful to civil society networks in terms of bringing them alongside the government. So they were very supportive to us as a civil society network at the time in helping to build our capacity and to engage. So quite often we see the UN as working with the government, but in this case, they were also working with non-state actors. And I thought that having that sort of a convening role was really, really um, important because we were then able to bring those that were often left behind into that discussion and and dialogue um, as as well. So I think that's important. There are um, donors such as the GIZ and others that are really trying to work with statistics officers to try and look at how can they accommodate alternative sources of data and non-official data. There's always that question around the quality, the timeliness, and and all of that. But I think those questions, while they were they're there, they should not distract from the importance of that data. I think where there's political will to incorporate the data, there should be a way to ensure that you know capacity is built and organisations are supported to be able to make their contribution.
2: Sure, sure, sure. Thank you. Let me go to. We have many more questions. Let me just ask a, a very concrete question: it Says, uh, what is explanation for 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 bad progress in in countries such as Brazil, Nepal, Nigeria? Um, what are your thoughts about about this this another country similar?
3: Uh, if if I may just just jump in quickly on on this, um, I, I think that. In the report itself, we are certainly not saying that, that progress has been has been uniformly bad in in these countries. That's that's not the the that's not our aim. We we what we do what we do say that is that it's been very uneven, and we try to show um, ways in which it's been uneven. But but more importantly, for our our intent is to show different techniques that can be used to to document. Inequalities in in terms of progress, particularly from a group based perspective, um, and you know within each country we also do highlight some some positive examples. For example, we look at positive discrimination policy in in Brazil, at the impacts of of aid right. in, in Nigeria, etc. So um, I guess we we don't get into an in depth political economy analysis of those countries, and so I, I won't comment on what the official explanation is. But I guess I would just say that it. it the, that it does need a, a lot more nuanced exploration, exploration that, that progress has been uneven to some extent in all three countries, and understanding the particular ways in which it's been uneven is, is perhaps a, a helpful start.
2: OK, so yeah, thank you. So there are good elements and not good elements at the same time. Yeah, we have to recognize that. Any other thought about this question? If not, let me just g- jump to another common question from the audience. Um, it says, the, the person says, I wonder how extensive local public authorities are aware of leave no one behind agenda. I think we need to develop capacity of local governments in addition to budget allocation for them to bring partners and meet local needs. In addition, local communities need to be empowered too so they can share the driving seeds and take decisions that's the comment of the
4: question um, anyone yeah I, I mean if i may I, I think that's a great question because in um, in my experience in many cases when like communities and, and local authorities are are not aware of these international conversations and, and in in many in many cases the dynamics of exclusion and discrimination are part of the norm, mm. and uh, and I yeah. think that's I mean that's something that needs to be changed, and it's part of like that uh, that grassroots again uh, uh, work that needs to be done by local civil society with the support of uh, the international community and 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 the like because it's uh, is, is is that realization that those dynamics are not are are, are 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 not normal uh, the, the the issue of uh, gender-based violence, for instance, in, in many local communities. Um, that's changing too, slowly but surely. Uh, but more can be done, and I think that's uh, I mean th- that's a great question. It, like, the 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 debate that we're having right now, it won't be heard in uh, in, in, in local communities. Uh, you know, around the world, but it can inform how, I mean, how uh, local grassroots and local civil society uh, can, can engage uh, and with, with these local communities and local authorities to actually change those, those dynamics uh, and change uh, the budgetary processes and the policy processes uh, and, and the participatory processes to, to change that reality. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely
2: right. Anyone else on this question from the audience?
0: If if I can come in here. Yes, um, Rachel, please. I, I guess I've been particularly inspired by some of the sort of legal empowerment type initiatives, um, connecting with with what Bessie was talking about and also with Ricardo. Um and and how those can help people to connect with with uh, well, to better understand their rights and, and connect with the, the formal system and and possibly to to change the law, right? Uh, so I'm thinking in particular of some of these community paralegals programs, for instance, um, that can that can help uh, put people in the driving seat uh, to, to take decisions um, in a way they might not without without that sort of facilitation.
1: Yeah. yeah. Maybe just one last comment on on my end um, on on that is that yeah I absolutely agree with with Ricardo. Um, it, it, it's it's the language of leave no one behind is not that that you would see with or hear with local government or, or local communities, but it needs to be the very essence of the social contract between people and their governments at the end of the day. But how do we ensure that it is translated and they understand that they're being left behind, but actually? not being left behind is part of their contract when they voted the government into power. So we need to think through as we engage in civic education activities, how do we ensure that people understand that? And even for local governments, they need to know that leaving no one behind is part of their contract and commitment to their local communities.
2: Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. I I mean, perhaps the last question will be um, uh, the following is, I mean, China made the the commitment to reduce extreme poverty to zero in 2020. Uh, So it was a clear target. Uh, It was a clear indicator Uh, extreme poverty equals zero. (laughs) Uh, So I wonder if you think we need concrete indicators for countries on leave no one behind, to have concrete elements, uh, um, uh, sometimes using The gene coefficient is not very easy and it's not very clear to understand so what do you think about is do we need concrete indicators and and the political will for countries to to pull together on those one two three concrete indicators or on leave no one behind uh yeah
3: if if i may jump in on this because this is something i i feel quite strongly about that that uh yes i think having concrete indicators is is a vital step just for making uh, transparent and explicit what it is we're trying to to measure and what type of progress we are are aiming for. Um, I mean, I think there has to be a certain amount of flexibility in terms of of working out which types of inequalities are most salient to which countries. Um, And I think the other thing, which is one of the things we've sought to do in a report, is to provide some very easily applicable um, indicators. As you say, the Gini coefficient is Probably not going to gain a huge amount of traction. Yeah. But are there are there simple ratios of group inequalities? Can we just look at basic differences between groups and use that as a basis for formulating some indicators that hopefully can can gradually gain um, public acceptance?
2: Yeah, thank you, know, uh, Ricardo. I mean, for instance, Ricardo, what do you think will be a very tangible target for for Mexico in the next four years to so say? Mr. President, I mean, we have problems with uh, with inequality for years. Things have been w- worsening. W- what do you think will be like a very concrete uh, indicator to say, well, yes, we didn't uh, limitate the whole problem, but we advance
4: on this one, two elements in the next four years? I don't know. Well, I mean, closing gender gaps on, like, throughout the life cycle, say, for instance, that that would be kind of a a set of indicators. Uh, And the other is uh, closing uh, indicators uh, between indigenous and non-indigenous that's right. Yeah, communities. Uh, I mean, when you look at the life expectancy of of indigenous communities in Mexico, is much lower than uh, than the average life expectancy, and and there are like different reasons. But like you also like, I and mean, we actually in Oxford, Mexico, we did a report on 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 that. Uh, it was called "Por mi raza hablará la desigualdad." Sure. Uh, and 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 you see how. Uh, in terms of education access to to uh, like uh, dignified employment and 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 the ability to build uh, assets uh, like people from indigenous groups uh, were systematically discriminated against and, and women within those indigenous groups were s- structurally discriminated so there is enough evidence to say you know how these intersecting inequalities were in Mexico, and and then how, how you close it is through um, affirmative action policies and and, mm-hmm. and all that, and there is enough evidence. Uh, th- there's there's enough data to to track those indicators, the indicators that like I mean, if you say, in if in five years, uh, indigenous girls. Are, are, are closing the gap in terms of uh, primary school attendance or secondary school attendance or access to 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 successful employments uh, that's that's a, a very easy clear target that can be measured and tracked
2: no thank you very much now thank you very much so we are we are almost at the end of the of, of the of the webinar um, i would like you to to have like 2 minutes each for your closing remarks uh, something that you want to stress something that you forgot to say before um so uh, uh, you have 2 minutes uh, 2 minutes each so uh, sh- let's start with the, with the same um, the same order that we have uh, perhaps so um um emma do you want to start
3: yeah, with with pleasure. Thank you. Um, I guess the 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 main thing that I would highlight as as steps moving forward, um, first is to look for ways to to make the 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 immediate imperative. I think is to look for ways to make the agenda central to efforts to recover from COVID. To highlight the impact of having you know such profound inequalities. And um how they can be averted as mm-hmm. as um yeah as as things improve. Um the second is what concrete steps can be taken to, to embed the concerns of the agenda within international and national processes, including as as uh Bessie and Ricardo have stressed, the need for, for grassroots um participation into those processes. And thirdly, I think the thing I'd stress is that that the there are profound evidence gaps that I think that we we do need to address in terms of uh, forming a systematic sort of evidence a systematic base of, of what we know and where the gaps are. So in terms of data, in terms of methodologies, um, and in terms of a better understanding of of the political drivers as well as you know concretely what works and what doesn't. So I think those are the three things that, that I would stress. Thanks.
2: Thank you very much uh,
3: Emma uh, Rachel sure
0: um, so two maybe quick uh comments from me I mean as we've been talking about I think very clearly addressing inequality is political right um so the core challenge is building is building political will um and and addressing inequalities and addressing this in a way that's that's politically sustainable um so you know it's about distribution it's about distributive politics and there are some sectors and some actors. That have entrenched interest, interests in not addressing it, uh, so I think we need to wrestle with that uh, quite directly, as we've been doing, you know, in our in our discussion. Um, and I think development work is is so often focused on really technocratic and and sort of managerial solutions to these things. And this is an area where it becomes really really clear that we need to be. Thinking politically and doing development differently, and 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 so on, um, even in things like monitoring and assessment. Uh, so that's one point I wanted to highlight. I mean, the other is around COVID, and we've we've talked about this this quite a lot. That uh, COVID is is I think reflecting and exacerbating existing inequalities, and there's been a lot of work looking at inequalities in different ways. I think, you know, when we think about group-based inequalities. Um, and how they've been impacted by the pandemic. There's been, I think, less work on on Global South countries, probably because of some of the data challenges. It's hard to look at it directly in many countries, but the work we see coming out of uh, other countries, the US and the UK in particular, shows very clearly that there are are really things to worry about in terms of exacerbating group-based inequalities. And I think this is something we're going to have to wrestle with and, and address and deal with for a long, long time. So it should be really at, at the
1: forefront of, of our minds. Thank, Thank you.
2: you, Rachel. Thank you very much. Uh, Bessie?
1: Yeah, I think that the solution should be, um, so a little bit linked to what Rachel has said. I think the solution needs to be a systems, um, changing solution. So really tackling the issues that make sure that make people constantly left behind. Otherwise, even within the next framework, we'll be talking about a new set of people being left behind. And I think secondly, um, the people that are currently being left behind, let them be part of the solution. So they're not helpless. They might be voiceless, but we can empower them. Let them be part of the solution.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Bessie. Ricardo?
4: Yeah, um, uh, I guess my my first point is that, I mean, from my perspective, we need to celebrate that we have the Leave leave No One Behind agenda. It's 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 an achievement. Uh, Fifteen years ago, or twenty years ago, we were not discussing these things. Or, as I was saying, it was on the, on the French discussion. So it's it's a great thing that we're doing this. That it's part of the of the UN platform, and that uh, it goes until twenty thirty. Although that that's closer than, than than we think. So we need to celebrate that, and we need also to recognize that there's a lot of work to be done, not only technically, as Rachel was saying, not only managerially but politically and 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 in a, in a very changing world that's that's where we need to think every single day how we're uh, making decisions as a society and what's the role i mean for governments for citizens for civil society for the international community we all have a role on how we make decisions and and we need to participate with this with this framework with this idea that uh, i mean for for I mean, for these decisions to work, they need to include everyone. And they need to include everyone with their own voice and, and with their own desires and, and and the like. It won't be easy. Uh, sometimes I'm, I'm optimistic. Sometimes I'm pessimistic. Uh, uh, but that, I guess that's my, my nature. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess we we can't we can't be defeated. Uh, let's celebrate the "Leave No One Behind" agenda. Let's recognize the challenges and let's let's identify that it's a, or, or let's agree that it's a daily work in progress where everyone has a, a, a role to play in how we make decisions and ensure that no one is actually left behind.
2: No, thank you very very much, Ricardo, and um, thank you very much to all of you. You you've been a, a great panel. Um, uh, it's a difficult topic, but it's a very important uh, one for development. So thank you very much to you, uh, 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 three, Emma, uh, Rachel, Mercy, and Ricardo as well. Um, and thank you for the, goal the global audience for tuning in and participating in the discussion. I would also like to thank the Gates Foundation for supporting this vital piece of research. We really hope that this conversation has l- highlighted the importance of the leave no one behind commitment, the challenges it has, the opportunities it has. Uh, we could be optimistic or, or, or less optimistic, but we are, it's good that we have this, this element in the agenda. And more importantly, how to navigate that within COVID in the next months and years. So hopefully, uh, also drawing on lessons learned and practices from other countries we can learn from what what they're doing. For all those who registered, we'll be sharing the recording of this webinar after this event, and you can find out more about the report from odi.org. Thank you very much, and good afternoon. Thank you to all of you.
1: Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.